It was June the 8th, 1783. As the end of the war loomed, that is, the war for independence, but before the Treaty of Paris was signed, George Washington wrote to 13 governors of the formerly colonies, now states, and he wrote this. I now make it my earnest prayer that God would have you and the state over which you preside in his holy protection, that he would incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government, to entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another, for their fellow citizens of the United States at large, and particularly for their brethren who have served in the field. And finally, that he would most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, and without an humble imitation of whose example in these things we can never hope to be a happy nation. As the general, then president, so eloquently states, the purpose of liberty is not to do whatever you wish, but it's given by God to pursue virtue, that is goodness, in all of her forms, and not be divided by strife and deceived by appearance. Nevertheless, there are other themes for the church and for the Christian that we see in today's text. So as you open up with me to Genesis chapter 13, verse 1, either in your Bibles or in the bulletin, I want you to pay attention to three themes. That we are always to return to the altar is the first that we walk by faith and not by sight is the second. And that God gives a blessing to share is the third. That we always return to the altar, that we walk by faith and not sight, and that God gives us his blessings to share. As we return in our journey to Abram, of course we took a break from that last week, we remember that two weeks ago, Abram seriously stumbled in his faith. He takes this detour to Egypt because of the famine and abandons the land that God promised. But here we are back at Genesis chapter 13, and we see Abram, Sarai, and Lot headed back to the land to which God called them, the land of Canaan. And that's an important point. The context here is an important point. Abram is not just acknowledging his sin and his self-reliance and fleeing to Egypt and not relying on God, but he's physically returning to what? Did you catch it? Not just the land of the Negev, but look at verse 2 and 3. 
as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been between Bethel and I, sorry, verse 4, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. If you're an underliner, that's a good section to underline. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. Abram, in his repentance, returns to the altar. He returns to the marker of God's promise for him. And that's no small point. For when we do sin, there is forgiveness. But practically, as we receive God's forgiveness, it's often very important to return back to the last place we were before we diverted on the detour. Before we had abandoned God. And so we see Abram doing this. We also see another thing. In verse 2, we read that Abram is rich in livestock, silver, and gold. You know, there's an old country song, you might know it. It's uh, Alan Jackson, I think. Too much of a good thing is a good thing. Remember that song? Well, in this case, it's not true. Too much of a good thing ain't a good thing. It's too much of a good thing, which is a bad thing. And here, in this case, there's too much wealth between Abram and Lot to stay together. The country is not big enough for the two of them. And look at verses 5 through 7. We see that is attested to by Scripture when it reads, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So what's going on here is in this agricultural, actually it's not an agriculture, it's a, it's a, um, a nomad culture, you've got all of these flocks eating off of the land. And the fact is that there's just not enough room for the flocks to eat. And so the herdsmen start getting into a fight over whose boundary and whose grass is whose, right? And Abram, in his wisdom, recognizes this. And he decides to go to Lot and present this issue. You see, they've got too much of a good thing. And so Scripture gives us insight into this major life choice for Abram and Lot. It might seem small, but this is the beginning of the trajectory that both these two men go on for multiple chapters afterwards, and indeed, actually, for Lot for the rest of his life. We know that it's not just a perception that there's not enough land for the herdsmen. It's not just that the herdsmen are being jerks and fighting with one another, this is a real problem. How will Uncle Abraham, Uncle Abram, I guess at this point, resolve the issue with his nephew Lot? Well, Abram shows great wisdom and foresight in avoiding strength and in setting up a parting. We read in verse 7, but now let's go on to verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Going on to verse 9, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself 
from me. Several scholars point out Abram's magnanimity here. He's not just generous, he's magnanimous with his nephew. In his homily on the passage, the great 4th century bishop and preacher, John Chrysostom, writes, See the extraordinary degree of his humility. See the height of Abram's wisdom. The elder, the senior, addresses his junior and calls his nephew brother, admits him to the same rank as himself, and retains no special distinction for him. And you probably didn't catch that because, you know, in our modern American culture, we think in very egalitarian ways. But that's not the culture that Abram and Lot are in. In ancient societies, what Abram does here is beyond the pale, to the point of almost being offensive. Because he takes Lot, his younger nephew, and he elevates him to the name of kinsman. Now, the, the, the Hebrew word here can be translated kinsman or brother. But I like to go with the translation of brother because of what Abram does next. The choice that he offers Lot is the choice that a brother would give another brother. Not the dictation that a, or an order that a uncle would give a nephew. Look what he says again. Is this not the whole is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. And if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Do you see what Abram's doing here? He's giving this choice to Lot beyond a choice beyond his station in the society. And on the surface of it, Abram is just stating the obvious. But in the next chapter, we're going to see that this land is full of all kinds of threats and that there's a lot going on in this choice that's going to bring prosperity or peril. Verse 9a, at first appearance, just seems to be offering a choice. So the first half of verse 9. But Abram's great generosity here is actually more than that. It's a statement of faith. It's a statement of faith. Is not the whole land before you, he says? Is not the whole land before you? Do you see, how is that a statement of faith? We read it, we, had, we just read that there's Canaanites and, and Perizzites in the land, right? There are these hostile tribes and yet, Abram says, choose whatever you want. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. What is he saying here? He's saying, the Lord has given us this land. And whatever choice you make in this land, God will prosper both of us. Do you see what Abram is doing? This is the exact opposite of what happened two weeks ago, where Abram flees Canaan for the verdant part of Egypt along the Nile because of the famine. Abram here is trusting completely in God. He's making an offering a decision made in faith and not in sight. So you see Abram believes that wherever he ends up, God is going to prosper him. 
and that he has a complete trust in the providence of God. But between verses 9 and 10, there lies a great contrast in two men. First, you have Abram, again, fresh from relying on his own cunning and wealth in the last chapter, who's now returned to the altar, making a decision on faith. And then you have Lot. In the New Testament, St. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he writes to the Corinthian church talking about how they're to make decisions. And he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. And here we have that on display. Let's continue with verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from one from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Lot saw the Jordan Valley was well watered. And look at the next phrase, the beginning of that verse. Like the garden of the Lord. The author of Genesis here is tipping us off in several ways in this text. That Lot is making a foolish choice that is being deceived. That terminology, like the garden of the Lord, you might have figured, goes back to the Garden of Eden. Isaiah uses that, as does Genesis. And scholar Gordon Wenham, an Old Testament scholar and senior lecturer at the College of St. Paul and St. Mary in Cheltenham, England, confirms that this phrase is used here and is used in other places as synonymous with the Garden of Eden. But what else goes on in the Garden of Eden? There's a choice to be made. And there's a great deception made that yields the fall. He also points out, that is, Wenham, that the Jordan Valley is not completely outside the Promised Land, but it's on the very distant boundary of it. And so Lot is turning his back on God and walking east. He's turning his back on God, just as Adam and Eve turn their back on God and walk east, banished from the garden. And the passage itself shows that what meets Lot's eye is not actually what is. There's a seeming and deceptive life and perfection in the Jordan Valley here. Everything seems good. It seems lush. Look again at verse 13, however. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so we get some foreshadowing here of what's going to happen to Lot and his family. That not all that appears good is in fact good. The word wicked, actually, I'm sorry, if you go back and look at the, uh, the verse prior, 
to this, verse 10 actually, in the parentheses, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The word for destroyed here in the Hebrew is shakath. Shakath. And it's a word that only gets used twice in the Old Testament. It's not just destroyed, it means obliterated. Wiped off the face of the earth, sometimes it's translated. Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed in the same way that the Lord wipes life off the face of the earth back with Noah. It's only used in, those, in these two passages. And so God is showing His people here that Lot's choice that seems good is actually a choice to live with the wicked and to put himself into great peril. What seems lush is anything but. He's deceived just like Eve and Adam. And we see in the next chapters that Abram ends up having to rescue Lot repeatedly. St. Ambrose, the mentor of St. Augustine, sums it up well. Simply, when he writes, virtue humbles himself, humbles itself, whereas wickedness becomes arrogant. Lot should rather have relied on one more wise than he. Virtue humbles itself, whereas wickedness becomes arrogant. Lot should rather have relied on one more wise than he. Indeed, he should have relied on the Lord, or at least on Abram's good counsel, rather than what appeared good to his eyes. And he suffers greatly from that decision. But the Lord rewards Abram for his choice. In verses 14 through 18, the Lord renews his covenant. Take a quick look with that sec- at that section with me. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can, can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so, as Abram makes that wise choice, we see this reaffirmation of the covenant that God made way back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 12. A, a promise of land and a promise of offspring. So, we see this outline of choice for Abram and Lot. But what does this have to say to the church and for you as a son or daughter, covenantially speaking, of God. Well, as I've said already, it does give us, number one, the instruction to always return to the altar. God delivers Abram and Sarah out of their peril, and Abram returns to that altar and to God's promises. But when we, as a church, or you, as individual Christians make poor and outrightly stupid decisions, as Abram does, and let's be honest, as we're apt to do, or make decisions out of our spiritual weakness, we ought not to let those poor choices keep us from the altar of God. Whether as a covenant people or as an individual, when we sin, we are to repent and return to God. 
to seek that forgiveness, to live in accordance with His will found in God's holy word, the Bible, and to remember that you first and foremost are by grace and by baptism justified and fed at the altar. Number two, that we as a church and as individual Christians are to walk by faith and not by sight. God's given us, as we learned back in Pentecost, the great gift of Himself and the Holy Spirit. And one of the virtues of the Holy Spirit is to have discernment beyond wisdom. Like Eve, however, Lot sees something that appears to be good and is deceived. But Lot is deceived because of his pride and because of his trust in his own ability. He makes the same mistake that Abram makes and he trusts in his own wealth and cunning to choose what's right. Because of that, there are consequences. Lot wastes the blessing of God. Lot also wastes the magnanimity of Abram and puts himself in a position that leads to danger of war, ultimately loss of all his wealth, and his family with the loss of his wife and the perversion of his daughters, if you know the rest of his story. This one small choice puts Lot on a trajectory. And despite Abram coming to his aid in the coming chapters, leads to great suffering. How often do we put ourselves in the path of strife and suffering by walking by sight and not by faith? We're deceived by what those around us call good that is actually evil. It's not a new problem. The author of Hebrews writes about it. Look at our lesson, Hebrews chapter 13, and particularly verses 7 and 8. The author of Hebrews writes, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you of the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. In verse 9, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. What's the author here saying? That we as people are prone to be deceived, even with the Holy Spirit, even with the church, that we have to guard ourselves and always return to the Word of God and to the faithful leaders that gave that Word to us. Our decisions must be built on the solid rock of God's truth. As we sang in that first hymn, no matter what the consequences, though they be the scaffold, we must base our decisions on the rock of truth. And unlike Lot, we ought not quickly look at something and assess it superficially. Rather, we should humbly approach God's Word, seeing if our choice aligns with His Word first, before we make an initial judgment, praying about it, and then seeking wise counsel from our leaders in the faith. Again, look at the Hebrews passage, verse 17, where the author writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. He continues, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. You see, the author is writing in humility here. He's not saying, obey me because I'm your leader. He's saying, obey your leaders, obey the apostles, and obey those who have given you the faith faithfully because they take very seriously the authority given to them. I can tell you that in our polity as leaders, the clergy here take this passage very seriously. As your elders, spiritually speaking, we desire to lead you, to lead you into all truth. And we know that we'll have to give an account for what we preach, for what we say, for what we do. That's not something that we take lightly. We love you, and we desire to help you in your walk. So if you have questions, and if the Scripture isn't forthright in answering those questions, if you're confused, we do ask you to come to us. Come to Father Joshua, Deacon Mark, or myself, and we'll try to help you discern. Finally, we have a great inheritance to share. In today's passage in Genesis, we see how God's blessing of Abram and Abram's trusting faith in God's promise of land, offspring, and prosperity gives Abram the ability to be generous with Lot. Notice that. If Abram was not blessed and was not confident in God's blessing of land, offspring, and prosperity, would he have elevated Lot to the state of equal? Would he have given him this decision? Would he have blessed them with that? No, of course not. But because he's so confident that God's going to prosper him wherever he goes, he's able to offer that. Abram returns and relies on God's promise, and God renews his covenant with him as a reward. But you and I have a covenant that's even better than Abram's covenant that even better than any covenant in the Old Testament, as the author of Hebrews says, that in Jesus, with Psalm 16, verses 6 and 7 that we read today, we can truly say as sons and daughters of God that the Lord himself is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. You maintain my lot. The boundaries have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a goodly heritage. You can say that, and so can I, confidently. Our world simultaneously gives us another couple messages. Our world tries to chip away at that confidence and that identity, particularly here in America, with two false ideas. Those ideas of our self-reliance and victimhood self-reliance, and victimhood. As Americans, we're simultaneously told, you can do it all yourself. You just have to work hard enough trusting in your own strength, and you will be prosperous. And at the same time, we're told, but you're powerless. You're a victim. You have to wait on the government, or corporations, or politicians, or some earthly power to save you. 
both of those are false because both of them leave God out of the equation. And neither of them are, incidentally, what our founding fathers taught. Enough of them write and believe in God's providence, in God's grace, to write into the very Declaration of Independence this line. And for the support of this Declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Those are not godless phrases, friends. Though that is neither a statement of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, nor is it a statement of being a victim and having someone come to save you. It's a statement that firmly puts their reliance upon God. And so, perhaps, the Founding Fathers are not the figures that popular history teaches about. Perhaps they're not those deists that everybody thinks they are. Perhaps they're not secularists. Perhaps they're men of great faith. In fact, perhaps they're men of faith beyond our faith. I'll leave that to you to go and read about. But regardless of that, as Christians, we should know that these twin identities offered by our society today are false, and that we cannot prosper in mere self-reliance, nor are we able to make good decisions outside of God, nor will we be saved by godless institutions. Note in Hebrews that hospitality and blessing is paired with obedience to God. It was at the beginning of our Hebrews chapter that we read today. Verse 1, the author says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The passage in Genesis we'll come to later. That's a reference to. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among us all, and let, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Because you are a covenant son or daughter of God and part of His church, you already have a goodly heritage, brothers and sisters. And so, let us live in that heritage, in that eternal life, in relationship with God here and now, our salvation rests on God alone, whether referring to the promises of the Father or the sacrifice of the Son or the obedient good works done in us by the Holy Spirit. Salvation rests on God alone. But God desires you and I to be a blessing to those around us. So, on this Independence Day, let us understand the liberty endowed in us by our Creator for what it actually is. The right to be free to worship. 
the right to pursue all that is good and true as the Holy Spirit directs your conscience. The right to life and to defend life. The right to serve one another in brotherly affection. The right to pursue the happiness that is ordained by God. Our rights and our liberties are from God, not government. Let us honor the author of liberty and exercise that freedom which he bestowed upon us to his glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.